Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you again. And uh, thank you to the team who have just done such a great job week in and week out. Continuing to lead us in worship, in ministry, in prayer, in giving, in community. Guys, we really, really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, this week, just a shout out to Jess Elliott, who works behind the scenes now with the sound team and uh, is getting our sound so much better. A number of you have commented on that, and, and thank you to Jess. And then to Stephen Greener, who just keeps, uh, yeah, just churning out week after week the actual stuff that goes online, bringing it all together and, and putting in so much work there. But we really appreciate it. And uh, Stephen's going to help me a little bit later in my sermon, uh, so I did have to give him a shout out. And then there's another group to really acknowledge, and that is um, the Mercy and Justice team who've been leading us through the Courageous Conversations. This is a, a partner sermon series that is <clears throat> running alongside and is hopefully integrating with the Courageous Conversations. So last week we continued in that series and we went to Acts chapter 11 and uh, looked a bit at Galatians 2 and uh, yeah just to say to that team thank you for your ongoing investment in us thank you for being part of us as we respond to the Black Lives Matter prophetic call uh, that confronts both personal and systemic racism and so last week we saw in Acts 9 I mean sorry Acts 11 that obeying Jesus command to preach the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of all of sins in his name to all nations creates and requires a diverse church and this in turn required a proactive leadership uh, response from a diverse team now make no mistake the gospel does not just permit or promote a diverse church uh, in which there's race and tribe and language and gender etc the gospel correctly preached resourced and lives creates and requires diversity however we saw as well that this was challenging this was tough this was difficult even for amazing spirit-filled anointed believers they were still so deeply influenced by the strong Jewish, national, racial, religious, cultural prejudices that they had. They'd been grown up into these things, socialized in these things, trained in these things. And they had to overcome these prejudices first by dealing with and repenting of their own bad theology and false ideas. And what was encouraging to see was that the Holy Spirit was still working even in that context, equipping them to pre-act in, in powerful ways instead of just react in these kind of situations. And so I undertook last week to come back this week and, and spend some more time on our context, our time and place in history, because the gospel still requires diversity. And the glorious thing is the gospel energizes diversity, correctly applied and understood. But a key question then for today is what ideas, what ideologies what problem theologies do we need to look at confess repent of replace and put right and and this matters deeply especially in our church where we are broadly speaking and in inverted commas an evangelical church 
Now, the word evangelical, a bit different to evangelistic, which means we go and share our faith. Evangelical has become a technical term which describes people and churches, believers who are committed to the authority of Scripture and the sharing of personal salvation with others. Sadly, that's what it used to mean. Today, it means that we have become committed to conservative white politics of preserving privilege and denying justice to the oppressed. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying, but that's in a sense what we are actually having to deal with today. People use categories, and that's what that category has come to mean. And so evangelicals who preach and teach repentance and forgiveness are now, for example, the most ardent supporters of the American president, Donald Trump who has publicly and repeatedly stated that he, for example, has nothing to repent of or nothing to ask for forgiveness for, but instead resorts to avoidance and blame and shame, and whose aggression towards the vulnerable and the marginalized, especially immigrants and people of color, is infamous. So I've got to ask this question, how is it that his largest support base if, if he's known and publicly stated he doesn't repent and he doesn't need forgiveness and he marginalizes the most vulnerable, how is it that his largest support base is from evangelical uh, churches and believers, uh, TV consumers, etc.? And hear me, how, how, how can that be? How is it possible that he has become the evangelical poster boy? How is it that evangelical leaders are standing up again and again, whether theologians or evangelists or pastors or family support groups, and proclaiming that he is the evangelical representative? How is it that we evangelicals have fallen so far that we have looked to Pharaoh to become the evangelical defender and champion. Moses was commended for not identifying with the power of Egypt, but rather connecting himself to those who were in bondage and being exploited and enslaved. How is it that our root, and I'm emphasizing this, our, my, my evangelical root has produced such poisonous fruit? And I dare not dodge the question. This is a fruit of our root. Let me emphasize this. President Trump's largest support base is from the southern Baptist Convention. I don't know if you've noticed, but PBC stands for Pinelands Baptist Church. This is the, ma the largest mainline denomination in the States. And it has a massive influence on the movement of Baptists worldwide. How is it that our root has produced this fruit. We dare not dodge the question. You see, just like the Jerusalem church, it's easy to point fingers back then. We need to look deep inside. Just like the Jerusalem church, we have to identify and repent of and ask for forgiveness for and put wrongs right 
that are rooted in our false ideologies and theologies. Erna Kim Hackett, who was born to a Korean mom and an American dad, writes of her experience in evangelical circles. And she says, white Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves again and again as the princess in the story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, but never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, but never Egypt. For the citizens of the most powerful country in the world, continues Irma, who enslaved both native and black people, to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when it is studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. It is some very weak Bible work. Notice she's got an American dad, but because of her Korean heritage, cannot bring herself to talk about us anymore. And so again, our key question for today, what ideas, what ideologies, what problem theologies do we need to confess, repent of, replace, and put right, and put their consequences right too? So we're going to go back to Galatians chapter 2, which in Paul's letter is describing the events of Acts chapter 11 and showing some of the gospel work that was demanded of everyone at the time. But especially those who had come from the Jerusalem church, whose bad theology was messing up a healthy new church in Antioch. And so we read in Galatians 2, 11 again. When Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that in their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and he is being ironical, sarcastic, and putting inverted commas there, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
But if, this is an important point, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. We find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I, destroy, uh, what I destroyed, then I prove that I would have broken the law. For through the law, I died to the law, verse 19, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained by the law, Christ died for nothing. So Paul's concern and challenge is that they were not acting in line with the gospel. Our question today, what ideas, what ideologies, what problem theologies do I need to confess, repent of, replace, and put right? Now, we'll find two in our text and another two that come from our day. And one of them we looked at last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the first problem is that of assimilation. We assume that people, this is what the Jerusalem church were doing, they required the Gentiles to assimilate into Judaism in order to belong. Not, notice, not assimilate into Christ, but into Judaism. They had to become good Jews because before they could follow Jesus. And so following Jesus was being reduced to changing your cultural her heritage and the formation that had come through your family line. And you had to take on one that wasn't you. Following Jesus was being reduced to a cultural requirement of becoming like us. It's just terrible theology. We looked at it last week, and as a, a previous PBC pastor, Rex Matthew, used to say, Rubbish! That's all you can say for assimilation. But there is a question for our discussion. In what ways do we require people of color to become like us and lose something of themselves in order to belong. It's worth thinking about that. We looked at that last week, so we go to the second one that's still in the text as well. What problem ideas, what theologies are there that we've got to fix? And the second one is this, that we want justification without finding ourselves identified as sinners. Remember verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find ourselves among the sinners, then suddenly we've got this problem. Now notice this, Jesus isn't promoting sin or judgment just because he's exposing sin and fixing it. If we're rebuilding something, it means, well, something got broken. That's all. We can't expect Jesus to justify us if we don't under, uh, accept the fact that there's something that needs justifying from. The simple truth that repentance for the forgiveness of sin must be preached in his name, Luke 24. And if we want to step into justification, we have to be ready to be identified as those who have fallen those who sin, those who mess up. Now notice this, if 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins is preached in his name, then some must preach and others must repent. And so I mustn't get upset when every now and then I find myself on the repentance side of the gospel equation. And you too. And we will be in good company with people like Peter and Barnabas, stunning believers who had to repent. And listen, we only ever get to the preaching side of the gospel equation with any integrity when we have become really good at the repenting side. And, and don't kid yourself that you'll get all <laughs> the repenting done and then you can preach. No, no, no. You repent as much as you can and you rely on the grace of God. But you know that even as you're preaching again and again, like Peter, we have to count ourselves, identify ourselves with those who have fallen. We have to repent. But notice there's a balance to this. It's not repentance for the sake of condemnation. Paul's confrontation with Peter was not in order to condemn him, but a recognition that what he was doing stands condemned already. He was preaching repentance for the sake of forgiveness. That's the Luke 24 passage. Repentance for, towards, for the sake of the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name. That's a critical point. Critical point. Don't ever demand repentance in Jesus' name if you have not decided beforehand that you are also going to forgive. Because if that person turns, Jesus will forgive them and you will alienate yourself from Jesus if you don't share in his forgiveness. This is what distinguishes our social and justice work, the gospel work of justice, from all other forms. We don't merely identify a problem, assign responsibility, and demand change. You see, the gospel is a messy, sin-fighting business. And we always, always start by fighting it with repentance and forgiveness. And we're not going to find a justification that does not throw us in a messy place with sinners in which we ourselves find out again that we are also among the sinners. And a couple of years ago, 2018, we looked at the forgiveness tool in the Equip series. And, and I do just want to bring it up. So Stephen, if you can pop it up on the screen uh, just next to me over here. And, uh, and then people can see that for a moment. But when we get to the point of seeing a, and recognizing something that's got wrong, in that moment we face a critical reality in which we need to come to God and do a proper job of confessing. Not just the event, not just the idea, not just the emotions. We go after the spirit that this thing carried and released in our lives because the enemy does not just gain access when we sin, but when we are sinned against and we don't forgive it. So the enemy's access must be uprooted. And then we have to go after this thing. And as we recognize, based on the death of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement, <clears throat> we can repent. And step number three, we can receive by faith our justification. That's what Paul is arguing for from this text and in a dozen other places. 
the recognition that then when we come out of that, we're not just trying to live in a vacuum. We kick out the spiritual forces. We kick out the lies. We get rid of, we purge, we cleanse ourselves of the emotions and the strongholds that have attached themselves to us. And then by the grace of God, we ask him to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and a new story, and a new truth. New ideas, good theology, has to come in and take its place. But the test of this, as you look at the left-hand side of that column, will be, as, as, as John the Baptist declared in Luke 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, restitution puts right the wrongs that were done. It's not sufficient to say that we've done the gospel work when all we have done is told God that we are sorry. That is not a description of gospel repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Once sin has been dealt with, its expressions, its extensions, its power, which can be both civil, personal, spiritual, in whatever way, must then be displaced. And an act of restitution, putting the wrongs right, is the fruit that the repentance was real. We can't say, I've repented. I just don't care what's gone on. And then we saw that this has a parallel process and that forgiveness goes through the same steps of recognizing something, naming all those painful things, not just an action, not just an event, but all those painful things and the lies that we've believed even as a result of the sins of others. And then we have to release and bless them. And we still have to get rid of all that junk and replace it with the truth and get good theology back in its place and a right spirit. And then we are ready from that place to reconcile with those who are willing to put wrongs right. This cannot be a cheap process. And we can only really reconcile meaningfully with people who understand something of the pain that they have caused and are willing to walk the road of making those wrongs right. And so repentance and forgiveness just genuinely, genuinely unlocks the kingdom. And what we see in the preaching of the gospel, resourced by the very gospel process itself, is an ability that starts with recognizing the wrong. And then instead of jumping from number one to number six, where we just assign responsibility and demand change, we all always are drawn into the messy business of dealing with sin, fighting it with the weapons of repentance and forgiveness and overthrowing its power in us and in the society around us. Thanks, Stephen. I might need to come back to that in a moment. So we now move out of the history of the text, but we keep asking the main question, what ideas, ideologies, problem theologies do we need to deal with? And another one that wasn't really so much in the text, but has become a profound issue in our day, is that of individualism. Evangelicals have effectively reduced the gospel. Oh, let's go back to our, to our slide. Stephen, if we could have that back up again. We often preach steps one, two, and three. And then we think we've done the gospel. If people recognize something's wrong, if they tell God they're sorry, 
and then they can feel a whole lot better. And so the Gospels become a form of catharsis, of emotional cleansing, as it were, in which we just feel better about ourselves. Now, individualism asks people when they do something wrong. A really weird question. Half the world thinks this is the nuttiest question ever. How can you live with yourself? Most of the world doesn't ask that question. It may be a good question. Sometimes we see people in Scripture wrestling with that. But most people are going, how can you live in community when you are doing that? How can you so insulate yourself? How can you so isolate yourself? We cannot stop at step three on, on just one side. Thanks, Stephen. You see, the gospel used to be a comprehensive vision of social change, of providing the life force that birthed new communities in which wrongs are put right and sins are forgiven. But now, apparently, in evangelical circles, I can be forgiven by just praying the sinner's prayer. I get promised eternal security in heaven as a matter of personal salvation. We have completely customized and individualized the gospel, if that is how we see it. And we take offense if someone challenges that. Now, of course, the gospel must be meaningfully personal. Praise God. It must be personal. But in our individualism, we've taken it a step further and we've made it private. And there's no such thing in biblical theology. And when we privatize our faith, we don't make connections between our formative experiences, our upbringing, our culture, and our politics when we try to process the things we either ought to forgive or repent of. We somehow think in our individualistic mindsets that, that there's just no connections. Those connections don't exist. And yet those things exert tremendous spiritual power over us. And so finding meaningful gospel freedom and deliverance means I can't see myself as some kind of island, as a free agent, having nothing trafficking on me. I have to recognize the influence of at least three things. Let me name them quickly. Heritage, place, and people. Heritage. Spiritual influence is massively generational. Just read the Bible. In God's grace, godliness can pass up to a thousand generations. But equally, evil choices can influence three or four generations if we don't deal with that stuff. And this is true especially when your nation or your culture or your heritage gets formed out of a sense of overcoming hardships. So if back in our story somewhere someone suffered once upon a time, our prosperity and power now is justified. Because we, we suck on that heritage when it, when it suits us. We go to that teeth, but then we ignore it when it doesn't. And on the basis of a disempowered past somewhere in our lineage, we justify any abuse now because our forebears, our, our, you know, our people had it tough back then, whenever back then may have been, even if it was like 300 years ago. We are connected in terms of heritage and we can't be selective. Number two, we're connected in terms of place. The influence of our city, of our country, of our land, of the dominion, of the laws we operate under, of the story that gets told, the history, however debatable, the influence is inescapable. 
And so I'm not an insular individual. Every place, every heritage, every place has gospel work that needs to be done. And every people has gospel work that needs to be done. The social patterns, the culture, the preferences, the way of life, the way community integrates, decisions are taken, communication is there, the relationship between the different sexes, all have enormous influence on us, sometimes good, but unless walking deeply in the gospel, often not. And that's worth further discussion. And so we've seen this bad idea of individualism actually shaping, taking over and customizing the gospel so that we do not live in accordance with the truth of the gospel. And then another one that, that's just very dominant in the evangelical church is pragmatism. You could call it utilitarianism. And yeah, let me just say this. For many wrong-headed and sinful reasons, um, we have justified exclusion and uh, discrimination in the church over the centuries. But pragmatism is the favorite one given in evangelical churches at the moment for homogenous churches. In other words, everybody looks, sounds, feels just like me. And our justification goes something like this. We justify homogenous churches because they grow and they grow faster and they grow bigger. And of course, bigger is better. If it works, it must be right. That is the ideology of pragmatism or utilitarianism. We value anything that apparently works. And so the lie of pragmatism is this, that if it works, it must be right. And if it grows a church, if it feeds my pride as an insecure pastor, or if I can send back lots of reports of revival as a missionary, if homogenous churches grow faster, and apparently they do, there's lots of research to say this is the way we should do it, and it's been tabled, and there whole, there's books written about why we should do this thing, because we're able to get the gospel out Foster. Now notice this, when we evangelicals reduce the gospel to steps one to three, our missionaries quickly realize that they got the job a lot, done a lot faster if they did not have to deal with the complexities and challenges of genuine diversity. A couple of more things, they didn't have to break demonic bondage of heritage. They didn't have to look at meaningful restitution, especially when it was required by the missionary's own nation of origin very, very often have been deeply complicit in colonial exploitation and uh, oppression. In other words, when we really start going into this thing, the missionaries find themselves trying to be justified and discover that they too are sinners. And there can be no arrogance on our part. But what have we done instead? We have been encouraged in the name of rapid growth to worship with people like, who are like us. It's just easier. It's just quicker. It's just whatever. So find people who like you. Reach them. Disciple them. Do church with them. It's questionable that what you have is church, but whatever. And then we'll pay the professional missionaries to go and do apostolic work and, and cross 
the ethnic boundaries and the linguistic boundaries and all the challenges and mess that go with it. Why? Because we don't want to mess with our churches. Whose church? Our churches. And then in the absence of meaningful contact, we have become blind to the resulting social trauma, the human pain and the systemic injustice. And we miss the staggering incongruity of voting into power those who exploit instead of value the vulnerable and who despise the oppressed and who crush the widow and the orphan and who drive the alien and the immigrant into wicked camps. Those people are our brothers and sisters very often. They belong to Christ. They belong to us. But because we do not worship with them, we ignore their pain. In our separate apartheid churches, and you don't have to be in old South Africa to know what I'm talking about. We don't pray together, and therefore we don't hear the heart cries. We don't minister to one another. And so we don't even realize how demanding the genuine work of the gospel is, especially for those who think they are the missionaries, like the Jerusalem church did. And when we don't pray together, when we don't minister to one another, when we don't worship together, we don't realize that we were meant to be one. And so because of these ideas and, and theologies, we've stopped acting in line with the truth of the gospel. It, it's like we, the word is not so much a plumb line. It's actually, we get the word orthopedic, to act in line. It's to be able to walk upright with integrity in the world and in the church. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. It gives us an uprightness. And so we have to look at our root because it has produced this fruit. PBC, these are not just bad ideas. Individualism, pragmatism, assimilation and more. They're not just bad ideas. They are lies about God's church, about the gospel and about you. And they are lies about the humanity of the people around you. And so when Paul writes about reconciliation to Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 15 and 17, his first point of call is that Christ has died for all. And therefore we no longer live for ourselves. <laughs> we, we live for the one who loved us, gave himself for us, and we do the same for others. Our lives are laid down for the sake of this new creation gospel. We enter the new creation in which we not only see Jesus differently, but we see everyone differently. So let me finish with this. The way you break the power of a lie is by forgiving those who passed it on to you. Then you're able to break the soul ties and the connections that hold you to it. The way you break the power of a lie is not by assigning blame, not by pointing fingers. It's by forgiving those who passed it.
down to you. And yes, we, we can't just forgive an idea. We have to look at its underlying emotion, its pride, its arrogance, its insecurity, its inferiority, whatever that idea created. We have to go after those emotions and kick them out in Jesus' name. And then we have to look at the behaviors. And then we have to look at the systems and the kind of community it created and the kind of city it created and its consequences. And you forgive for all the pain and suffering that that lie has caused to you or through you. And if you want to repent well, start by forgiving those who pass the lie on to you. And ask any, the forgiveness of anyone to whom you have passed the lie on. That's how we break the power. See, the only way we're going to genuinely connect with each other in righteousness is by breaking the old ties, the old connections that were established by sin. Then we are free when we let go of those old lies to form new, meaningful, life-giving gospel connections with one another. And then we can begin to dream of and build a church made new by both restitution and reconciliation. And the church can once again be a prophetic picture to the world of the power of the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenge. We thank you for its truth. And we thank you for the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you are calling us to walk with integrity in this gospel. We thank you that the gospel has sufficient power when we deal with it in all its fullness to address the very challenges and to provide the healing for the, for the things that have been harmed and hurt and to bring wholeness to that which was broken. Father, we want to pray that as a church, we would overcome these lies through the power of repentance and forgiveness. We pray that we would walk in a different spirit. We pray that the world through us would see wrongs being put right, restitution being lived out and joyful reconciliation, creating one new humankind revealed by your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I want to urge you not just to hear this and then move on. I want to urge you into the courageous conversations. I want to urge you into the journey to keep doing the hard work, to keep doing the sin-fighting, messy work of the gospel and seeing what God will do with us. Thanks, guys. The Lord bless you.